This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Wealthbar. Wealthbar makes it ridiculously easy to access professionally managed investments and financial advice. Invest in a professionally managed portfolio in minutes. You'll also get unlimited financial advice from a certified financial planner, when and how it works for you. Sign up at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is easy-to-use accounting software designed specifically with you, the small business owner or freelancer, in mind. FreshBooks makes it easy to stay in the black without seeing red. It's genuinely easy to invoice, expense, and manage your books as a small business owner. For more information, go to freshbooks.com slash oppo. From Canada land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and where in the world is Sandy Garasino? I'm at home. I'm at home in Vancouver. How are you, Jen? Uh, I'm pretty good, but I gotta be honest, even home in Vancouver looks pretty good from Calgary right now. Well, it does, because I remember I spent many a February in Calgary and environs over the years. You've paid your dues, is what you're telling me. I have. I've got the frostbitten toes to prove it. All right. Now, many of our audience will become angry at us because once again, we are delving headfirst into conservative politics. Yes, guys, I know you're quite correct. We've done a lot of conservative stuff over the last few weeks, and I promise we will shake things up for next show. But right now, it is the season of the conservative, and we have to address what is going on with the conservative leadership race. We have to, because despite the uh, appearance of little happening, there's actually a lot happening, isn't there, Jen? It's very interesting. So, to help us unravel it all, we have talked to a guy named Ken Busenkul, who is a former Harper strategist and the partner of KTG Public Affairs. Now, Ken recently wrote a really interesting little op-ed in CBC Calgary, where he laid out what the Harper government's strategy was for winning majorities. And he explains why that strategy is now irrevocably broken, and what a future conservative leader is going to have to do to try and rebuild the coalition to win enough votes in the future. So first, I want to start out by talking a little bit about your op-ed, which appeared in CBC Calgary recently. I mean, I thought it was a really interesting op-ed because you you showed readers how the electoral sausage gets made and what kinds of considerations a political party has to make strategically in order to try to win. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of explain for us what the Harper strategy for winning was. Yeah, I mean, political parties exist for one reason, which is to form government. And if you have a political party that doesn't have that as its goal, it's not a a good political party. And so Harper's strategy really, I think, breaks down into two things. Number one, a collection of strengths uh, across the country in different pockets. So, you know, uh, rural BC, obviously Alberta, Saskatchewan, everywhere. Um, and then in Atlanta, Canada, some smattering of seats and then some strength around Quebec City, some strength around Ottawa and southwestern Ontario, sort of rural Ontario. But in the last or in every single election, and frankly, this is true in the Ontario Tories as well, the real key to victory is this horseshoe region around Toronto, which we in political parlance refer to by its area code, which is the 905 region around Toronto. 
And that has been sort of the bellwether region. Conservatives win when they win those suburban seats. I wouldn't call them urban or rural. They're suburban seats. And they tend to lose when they don't win those seats. And so a brilliant guy named Patrick Mutart, who uh, did some work in the 2004 campaign for me, then became a permanent Harper staffer and strategist after that. And he said, let's learn some more about who are the voters in the 905. And so Patrick went about saying, who are the key voters that we have? And he developed some voter profiles for voters that we have, and there was two or three of those. Who are the voters who, when they vote for us, we win, and when they don't vote for us, we lose, swing voters, and he developed two or three profiles for that. And who are voters, and again, this is a political party, who are the voters who never vote for us, and we shouldn't really spend too much time being worried about them. And so we had three categories of voters. And so in the sort of core voter group, were guys like our friend Dougie. And Dougie was this beer-swilling construction worker who, if he voted, voted conservative. And so he was a core voter of ours. The problem with Dougie was, uh, if he had a choice between drinking beer and voting, if he wasn't mad enough, he'd drink beer. And so, you know, we needed a strategy, which was called getting the turnout higher for Dougie. And so, and we knew that Dougie would vote if he got mad about wasteful spending. So that was part of the strategies to talk about some of the waste and the sponsorship scandal and et cetera. And our, our advertising to his demographic and to the TV shows and other things back when people watched TV, were all geared toward uh, making Dougie mad. It's decision time. Liberal or conservative? Let's break it all down. Is Justin ready? To pay for his promises, he'll run a $10 billion deficit, impose a $1,000 tax on the typical worker, cancel the monthly child care checks, and Harper's plan? Protect our economy with a balanced budget, a tax cut on your paycheck, a tax credit to renovate your home, Higher taxes with Justin, lower taxes with Harper. In an election this close, there's a lot at stake for you and your family. Then we had in the swing voters, uh, women with children, and usually women with two, three, or, or more children. I always like to joke that if you have three children, you're 50-50 like to vote conservative, and that percentage goes up by 10%. For every additional child you have, so by the time you get 10 kids, you're 110% likely to vote conservative. <laughs> But Heather, Heather uh, had a different set of concerns. She was, you know, at the end of the month, she was worried about balancing the family checkbook. She wanted to put her kids in hockey and in music lessons or in ballet and in trombone. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of decisions that were on the, on the cusp for her. And so when Harper talked about the sports and arts tax credit, even though really it was a, it was a pretty minor thing and people so, sort of say, oh, these targeted tax credits are crazy. But for Heather, that was a signal that Harper or Harper and Harper's people understood her plight at the end of every month. And it was a signal that they understood her. And then the $100 per kid, of course, uh, under age of six was also something that showed that the Harper government understood. And so we developed these voter profiles of different types of voters. And then we developed our targeting around those voters from what they wanted and what they needed. And critically, we knew that there were enough of these voters in those 905 ridings that if we could convince a greater turnout of Duggies and a greater switch votes to the Conservatives for the Heathers, we could have a better chance of winning. And so, that's, so that was how that's how we went about it. So there was also two other elements to the strategy. One was um, in order for this strategy to work, uh, according to your own op-ed, the NDP had to have a very strong showing, which would effectively leech off liberal voters. 
Yeah, I mean, we had we played our game well, but in, in 2006, you recall, Jack Layton was a, a fairly popular national NDP leader who was coming into his own. And all the polls were showing that Jack Layton had sort of between the, the 17 and 25 to maybe even 30 percent support. Um, and particularly in, in a couple of the regions, his support was, was tending to be very strong. That allowed us to win the 905 with around 40 percent of the vote. I'm intrigued by the uh, analysis of Dougie and Heather, especially in the 905, which is um, roughly 50% visible minority and a very, very high percentage of immigrant voters. And I would suggest that 2015 was a seminal election because the choice, the strategic choice by the Conservative Party to go after kneecaps, to go after the barbaric cultural practices, to really target um, and create serious challenges for particularly Muslim voters, but also voters of color, making them feel vulnerable. Was that not um, a long-lasting strategic error? I'm not going, I'm going to point to the math on this. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm, first of all, I'm going to say, I don't think you're entirely wrong. I think we sent some signals that were not very well received, but the math tells a slightly different story because in 2011, we got 42 and a half percent in the 905 across those ridings. And in 2015, we got 39.9. So it was a drop of 3%. Now it's entirely possible that every single one of that 3% drop were from those new Canadian groups, but uh, I think, Visible minority I, uh, groups. Visible minority groups are new. You know, we tend to call them new Canadians. That's, but they're not um, the same. So it, 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 the math just doesn't suggest there was a massive fall off in those votes. What, what I would say in addition is that, and people say, you know, Jason Kenney obviously did a great job for us in those elections, targeting or going into those communities and making them feel comfortable with us. What we found was that, you know, a Dougie from a visible minority didn't vote all that much different than a Dougie from uh, a traditional Canadian family. And, and a Heather from a from a, a new Canadian family or a visible minority family didn't always vote that differently than, than a Heather from the general population. And so their concerns... Because most in the 905, uh, you know, you have, especially among second generation Canadians, they tended to have similar concerns, even if they were in communities that, that were, you know, and there's pockets of different communities around Toronto. But what we found when we pushed on these things is that the Heathers, and of course they had different names, but the Heathers in the visible minority communities didn't, didn't vote or think that much differently than the Heathers in the traditional Canadian communities. You know, one of the things that I think was a strategic error about those particular decisions in 2015 was, you know, targeting niqab bans, targeting um, barbaric cultural practices did sort of bring in a wave of potential voters into the party, but they turned out to be really unreliable one-issue voters. That would, however many um, you know dollars or or names you manage to stuff the database in by appealing to those people, proved in the long run to be nothing because they didn't they didn't turn out enough on mass to actually turn the tide, and they just weren't engaged enough in the mainstream political system to be worth the sacrifice of the party's reputation, especially with um, new Canadians and visible minorities. Is there a needle to be thread on Bill 21 or just a choice to be made? I mean, I've heard some some arguments here that the Conservatives should really just double down on the West and the 905 and be willing to lose the handful of seats in Quebec in order to try and fortify its position in the 905, in which case the answer might just be for the Conservative Party to take a principled stand and oppose Bill 21. Sitting in Lethbridge and you're, I think, sitting in Calgary, that sounds like a very good idea. 
But I think uh, any party that, that aims to govern Canada, which is why I think bilingualism is so important in the leader, even though we have so many people in Canada that aren't bilingual, I think if you were to take a, an aggressive position on Bill 21, it would feel it would feel and maybe portrayed to a lot of people that you were deliberately writing off a part of the country. And I'm not sure that that would be a smart strategy from, again, from a regional perspective. And, and uh, you know, again, I personally have a lot of problems. I'm in favor of religious liberty and all these things. And I think that these kinds of, these kinds of choices and these kinds of policies for a conservative who believes in religious liberty are problematic on a principled basis. But in terms of the regional politics of Canada, I would be very careful to run a strategy that could be portrayed as writing off one part of the country to win the rest. I think that did unbelievably bad damage to the Liberal Party in Western Canada for generations, and I would hate for the Conservative Party to go too far down that road. So can, can I just ask you, what do you think are the, the major winning issues? What's going to make that dial move substantially in Ontario? Again, I point to a hard-fought election where your party drew a lot of blood uh, from the Liberals, from Justin Trudeau, but it, it didn't dent Ontario really at all. So what's going to make the difference going forward? So I think this will take some hard work and some intuition and some smart political people to spend some time doing. Um, But as usual, I'm not going to let that stop me from pontificating. (laughs) I mean, the answers are difficult and will take a lot of hard work. But I think there's a couple things that I would look to or that I would be testing very early. And number one is climate change. And look, what matters in politics is not what parties say, it's what people hear. And, you know, the the Conservative Party put together a 75 or 80 page uh, climate change policy, and they thought that that was enough. But frankly, what people heard was that they were against a major component of climate change from their opposing party. And climate change has become, I think, an issue of such importance to people that it cannot be ignored. And particularly, I think it's become an issue for that extra 10% of voters. I think getting from 40 to 50% in the 905, our accessible voter base, that 10% that we need cares an awful lot about climate change. You know, 10 years ago, uh, Harper, 2008, Harper proved that if you have a battle between between being green or dealing with climate change versus don't raise my taxes, don't raise my taxes wins. I'm not sure the calculation is the same today. I'm not sure that that a tax fight beats uh, climate change, especially if your tax fight is centered around the other guy's climate change plan is a bunch of bunk, and I'm not putting anything realistic in the window to compete with it. So that's number one. Number two, I think the group of voters, I talked earlier about, about women with three or more children. I think aspirational mothers are going to be a very important demographic for the Conservative Party to focus on, and I call that women women who have zero, one to two children, so women who would like to become a mother. And I think, I think the issue of childcare is going to be is going to be a growing important issue for that demographic. And I think the conservatives need to think carefully about paternity, maternity leave, and childcare. I I wrote something about this with Jennifer Robson last year, and I think conservatives need to take those kinds of issues seriously. Issues that. You know, we can't win by saying we're going to balance the budget and cut taxes. That's the sort of the Wall Street Journal traditional conservative approach. We need to have conservative solutions to non-traditional conservative issues like childcare and climate change, and we need to take those things extremely seriously. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by one of my very favorite sponsors, FreshBooks, the fantastically easy to use accounting software. You started a small business because you love what you do, so why don't you have time to actually do it? 
FreshBooks help you focus on your craft by saving you time invoicing, expensing, and tracking your work. FreshBooks is so easy to use with built-in automation to ensure you spend as little time as possible invoicing, expensing, and tracking time. You can get back to what actually matters to you, growing a business. FreshBooks has plans designed for all types of small businesses, even layabouts like me. So whether you're a freelance photographer, a carpenter, or a podcaster, and let's be honest, you'll all be podcasters soon, choose a plan that's right for you. FreshBooks has everything you need to manage your books, invoices, expenses, time tracking, etc. FreshBooks is a simple and intuitive tool for small business owners. But if you ever need a bit of help wrapping your head around something, they even have an award-winning Toronto-based support team who are always happy to help. For more information, go to freshbooks.com oppo. This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by Wealthbar. Wealthbar believes your investment experience shouldn't be determined by how much you have. So whether you've got $1,000 or a $1 million, you get access to professionally managed investments and financial advice. Open a TFSA, RRSP, and more online in minutes. No paperwork, no hold music. Check in on your investments anytime from your computer or their easy-to-use mobile app. Start investing with as little as $1,000. Consolidate your investments into one easy-to-manage view and get the full picture of how your wealth is growing. Wealthbar makes it easy to make more confident decisions about your money. Speak to a financial advisor by phone, chat, email, or book a meeting. Services included in your fees, regardless of how much you have to invest. Start investing right away from the comfort of your PJs. Talk to a financial professional by chat, email, or phone, or book an appointment through the app. All at your convenience. Sign up in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and get a $100 fee credit. Visit wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand for more offer details. It's really interesting to compare and contrast Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay here, who are the front runners. Obviously, there are other uh, people in the race. Other declared include Marilyn Gladue, Richard Decoré, Jim Karahelios, um, Clayton Knutson, Leslin Lewis, Rick Peterson, Aaron Seal, Derek Sloan, Bobby Singh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We shouldn't totally ignore Marilyn Gladue, who, of course, is a, is a contender in this race and also the only woman in this race. Personally, I think it's not a great sign for the Conservative Party that they could only attract one woman to run. However, I mean, at this point, we're still looking at a very two-horse race, and that is O'Toole versus McKay. It's fascinating to, for me to see how these two men have positioned themselves so far. O'Toole is running to be a very sort of meat and potatoes kind of conservative who's trying to appeal to cultural conservatives at the base. You kind of get that appeal to the the gut level stuff that the base is going for. Peter McKay is running a very different campaign. And so far, it's a campaign of absolute utter platitudes, um, a total lack of any kind of concrete messaging, terrible, terrible social media game. You know, he's running as if he is this anointed leader who is not even trying to appeal to the base of the Conservative Party. It's and as if he's the Trudeau non-Trudeau. Yeah, he's exactly. The, he's the Conservative Trudeau light. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to point out one very interesting tweet because it was flagged to my attention. And I think it's actually a very telling tweet where you have Peter McKay sort of doing like a yoga pose, wearing an I Love Alberta Oil t-shirt next to this hour has 22 minutes is Mark Critch. And Mark Critch has tweeted out, last week's Trudeau yoga tweet and interview shutdown had folks talking. So I showed up and made Peter McKay do yoga with me tomorrow night on a new 22 minutes. So in case you haven't been following this particular drama um, in the ongoing tailspin that 
Peter McKay's campaign has been. Peter McKay does this interview with CTV. And, you know, he goes and does a tour of something or another. And then the reporter sits down with him. And Peter McKay starts talking about the tone of the race and how he wants to have a more elevated, you know, civil tone. And the reporter, to her credit, goes to him and says, yeah, well, you, you know, you just tweeted this nasty thing about, you know, Justin Trudeau doing yoga. You know, is that the tone you're looking for? And Peter McKay kind of, you know, falters. And he's like, well, no, that was that was beneath me. And I apologize. Like, that wasn't right. And at that point, one of Peter McKay's staff members basically comes in to try and shut the interview down and peter mckay you know to his credit uh shuts down his own staffer and is like no no she's just doing her job she's just a reporter asking questions and trust me as a journalist it's really nice to see a conservative leader or a conservative potential leader kind of stand up for a journalist who's doing her job and and to respect the fact that they're doing their job you know we have seen this conservative party and certainly the republicans and conservatives in the u.s take a very very nasty tone toward journalism generally totally failed the never defend just attack yeah he did he did (laughs) um so i mean as a journalist i really respected that but at the same time i have to admit from a political point of view should he be trashing his staff on air like like his social media has been an absolute tire fire let's get to the essence of peter mckay i mean what i'm seeing in peter mckay is the guns and yoga candidate you know he's this is the guy who was wearing the gun t-shirt the assault rifle t-shirt now he's the Albert. I love Alberta oil. Yeah. And I love yoga. Yeah. Um, is there anything that Peter McKay doesn't love? Yeah. Except Justin Trudeau, who he'd probably just really like to be. You know, I just, I, it's where is this campaign going and how are Canadians, how are, how are Canadians going to respond to this? And I think we're really seeing that, that, you know, there's no there there yet. Yeah. yeah you can't pander to everybody. That's the problem. Like there has to be a point. At which you put forth a set of values and positions that people can actually vote on. You can't just like try and appeal to absolutely everybody. And, and I think it comes across as disingenuous. And this is why this tweet twigged for me. But, um, you know, Mark Critch put out this tweet and it read last week's Trudeau yoga tweet and interview shutdown had folks talking. So I showed up and made Peter McKay do yoga with me tomorrow night on a new 22 minutes. And, you know, in it is this picture of um, Peter McKay wearing a I love Alberta oil t-shirt and doing a yoga pose with Mark Critch. And this is just fascinating to me because how it reads to me, honestly, is Peter McKay apologizing for putting out a tweet making fun of Trudeau and asking for forgiveness from the 905 Laurentian consensus set by going on he's really sorry yeah he's really sorry <laughs> by going on this hour has 22 minutes with mark critch now if there is like a show or a personality who's more widely held in contempt by the conservative base it's probably this hour has 22 minutes well, like do, i do you not think that it, he's in a way here what mckay is doing is he's trying to signal he's trying to fight the general election in the conservative nomination race and this points out yes that's exactly what he's doing that this points out the difficulty which is that of course in in the modern era in modern times everybody is actually going to get tarred with what they put out in the nomination race it used to be that we weren't before social media we weren't really paying attention that much to what was happening it was kind of inside baseball inside the party and then you go then you pivot to the general later on and everybody sort of forgets all the more fringy things and and the playing to the base that you did during the nomination race to get the nomination we're seeing this in the democratic party right now but everybody's going to get nailed with 
with that. So I think he's probably assuming or hoping that it's okay to assume that he's going to be the leader and uh, he's not going to do something that's playing to the base like Aaron O'Toole is doing because you look at what Aaron O'Toole is doing and I do not see anyone who is playing beyond the four corners of who the Conservative membership is today. This is not someone who is trying to expand the tent. This is not someone, Aaron O'Toole is not trying to reach across the aisle. He is not trying to play to the 905. He is trying to play to veterans and to the base and to um, traditional Christian cultural values, social conservatives. That's what I see. Without getting into detail about the social conservative side, because I think that that's a side conversation, Aaron O'Toole is running to win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Peter McKay is running to win the 905. The problem is that if Peter McKay can't actually put forward a set of values or positions that appeals to the Conservative Party base, he's going to create a vulnerability for himself. I mean, polling shows him far and away ahead the leader. But a lot of that polling is based on national polling, which is irrelevant for a leadership campaign. And a ton of it is simply based on name recognition. And both O'Toole and McKay have a couple of weeks to sort of build their name recognition and build their case. I actually think that O'Toole is positioning himself very intelligently to win the race. And then, you know, after he wins the leadership race, then he can start micro-targeting the 905 with specific sort of values and propositions that he thinks can expand the tent. His job right now is not to expand the tent. His job right now is to win the votes that are on the table. But by then, he will have established a brand that is very hard to escape from. And this may be where McKay is a little bit better. I mean, it looks, yes, it looks better for O'Toole with the base right now. But let's go back to what Ken Bolsenkohl has to say, which is that there is no way for the Conservative Party to win a a majority government. And if they don't win a majority, it's going to be very hard for them to ever govern at all unless they expand that tent, unless they do appeal to the 905. That's that's right, but they've got time to do that. the The Conservatives, well, but I don't, I think that this is actually a really existential problem. I don't think anybody in the Conservative Party has, I haven't seen it articulated, I haven't seen it said anywhere, how very bad the trouble they are in. The Conservative Party is in deep, deep, deep trouble because its strength entirely is in one small region where it has virtually 100% of the seats, but it's in a minority position everywhere else in the country, and its brand has been almost rejected everywhere else in the country. It's, it's But its brand has been re- rejected everywhere else in the country as that brand has become increasingly dilute, which is an interesting conversation. I don't know that it has. Like, Sheer, what the hell did Sheer stand for? What the hell did the Conservative Party stand for in the last election? They had, they had ample opportunity to be like the anti-corruption party on SNC. They completely failed to take it up. They had every, every opportunity to come up with a credible conservative climate change plan with a lot of sort of market-based tools for for trying to reduce carbon emissions. They completely rejected that and were like the anti-carbon tax party. Uh, they had every opportunity to uh, take a strong stand on Bill 21. And absolutely, they should have taken a strong stand on Bill 21, even at the expense of the votes in Quebec that didn't come to it anyway. They completely failed to do that. And so what happened was the Conservative Party got labeled as the party that was uncomfortable with abortion and gay rights because Sheer was kind of, you know, shaky on those answers. Well, in the absence of actually putting forward a set of policy positions about what you stand for, you will be labeled like you other people will put their positions on you and you will be labeled as that. 
But this is where I see the peril of McKay. What the hell does McKay stand for? I have no idea. Okay, well, let's rewind that clock a little bit more because it's not just Andrew Scheer in 2019. Mm-mm. We've just gone over the um, catastrophic mistake of attacking religious minorities in mm-hmm. 2015. And we know that and we're, we've been watching Jason Kenney attacking environmentalists Right today, he's got a war room. He's got an inquisition going on in. Oh Alberta. man, don't! If we're if we're going to start unpacking Jason Kenny, I'm going to like take forever here. This is the party of attacking minorities and environmentalists, and we just listened to Ken Bosenkul say the party cannot get to uh, into positive territory unless it adopts a climate change strategy, and we can see the failure and the disaster of the minority bashing. So I think that this is why I say this is not on Andrew Scheer. This is the path that the Conservative Party has been on for a decade. I think that that's that there's some truth to that. And I, you're right. I don't think that the failure of the party was solely Andrew Scheer. I would be a little bit hesitant to sort of pin the National Party with the particularly ridiculous nonsense happening in Alberta right now. Jason Kenney is not a representative of the Conservative Party of Canada anymore. He's playing the role of Premier of Alberta, and he's playing to a specific base within Alberta. And if you want to talk about how silly I think his war room is and his inquisition are, believe me, I can have that conversation at depth, but we're not having that conversation. The CRA audit started in 2012. This has been going on. Oh, no, no. I'm not disputing this. I'm not disputing this. This has been going on for almost a decade. The hostility is out there, and it's been trumpeted in the pages of the National Post and all of its newspapers across the country for almost a decade. That is the brand of the Conservative Party. I, I think that that's correct. I think that there's a whole other side conversation we could have about a lot of that stuff, and it's really interesting. But generally, yes, I think that that's correct. And this is why I think that the Conservative Party has an opportunity here to pivot. Like, there's no reason, as I said this before at the outset, there is no reason why the Conservatives should have ceded ground on the environment. There's nothing anti-conservative about being for a clean environment, for conservation, uh, for market-based solutions to climate change, like for being forward-thinking on these issues from a conservative value set. Like there's no reason why the Conservative Party should be doing that. And they've inter- But the reason is so obvious. Their base is Alberta. Alberta is an oil and gas economy uh, that has driven huge revenues, by the way, not just for Alberta, but for the country generally. Alberta is also just 34 seats. But they're, af- they're afraid that uh, if they let the climate change issue take control, this will have impact on the oil sands and on oil sands development and pipelines then that shows a lack of imagination on their front. Because like, there isn't any reason... Like, Alberta is also supportive of conservation efforts. Like, Alberta is also supportive of generally regulations to deal with tailings ponds and those sorts of issues. Like, there, there isn't any reason why you can't come up with a conservative climate change policy that Alberta could get behind. Like, it's just, it, it isn't that complicated. Even a Kenny has kept the 100 megaton cap on the oil sands, you know, to limit its long-term growth. You know, you want to talk about um, oil sands. Let's talk about small nuclear reactors up in the, up in the oil sands to try and reduce carbon emissions and in, in oil sands mining. Like there's there's about a million and one things that the conservatives could do to try and help impact climate change uh, issues in Alberta that doesn't entail shutting down the oil sands. So like, I just think it's just more simple than that. I think that they haven't put a lot of thought into it. And instead, they just decided, hey, we can rile up our base by getting them opposed to a carbon tax by treating it as a new revenue measure because we know our base hates new revenue measures. And that's where we're going to go. 
And I just think it's a very, it's a short-sighted, narrow strategy because what it has effectively done is it seeded this really important strategic ground to the left. That's all it's done Mm -hmm. for no reason. Mm -hmm. And not just the left, but the center too, because I think that uh, climate change as an issue is broadly and widely accepted uh, by the mainstream of Canadian public opinion, and it's only going to continue. But I think that this this is the hole that the Conservative Party has dug for itself as a brand and as an identity. And I think this is this is going to be going forward uh, a deep deep issue that every one of the leadership candidates is going to have to contend with, but probably not during the leadership race, because we're seeing the tone set right now, which is the fight for the base. oppo this week we'll be back in two weeks get in touch at oppo at canvalenshow.com or find us on twitter at oppocast this episode was produced by david crosby our managing editor is kevin sexton theme music by nathan burley